Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is great to have you back here for yet another episode of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is the show, as you know, where we have discussions that probably discussions that you likely won't hear anywhere else. These conversations that we have are focused always on injustice that is rampant in the criminal justice system. And today we have some news stories that I want to talk about that I think some of them will blow your mind. This I can promise you. For today's episode, I will be welcoming in again another Lions of Liberty contributor, and he's going to help me break down some of these very important stories. But before I introduce my co-host for the day, just want to strongly encourage all the listeners to check out the show notes page where you'll be able to find links to everything we're going to talk about. You can find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF25. This is episode 25, so that is where the FF25 comes from. My co-host today is a regular contributor here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. He may keep his name anonymous, but he is no stranger to the Lions of Liberty audience. Of course, that means my guest today is the always intriguing Rico. Yes, like a South American soccer player, he only needs one name. Rico, <laughs> welcome back to Felony Friday. What is up, Odie? I thought you were going to say I'm no stranger to felonies, but I was going to correct you and say I'm only no stranger to misdemeanors for my past. <laughs> I didn't want to put that label on you. Know, I didn't want to get your past out there and all that stuff. But, yeah. I was also going to say what should be a felony is your so uh, – ho-hum attitude towards another championship for the city of Pittsburgh while I'm dying here in the city of Cleveland. Per our pre-show discussions, I'm even more annoyed, but, you know, congratulations. That is true, and I, I do graciously accept your congratulations. Yes, the, the Penguins did win the Stanley Cup, and uh, this episode is going to air a little bit. You're, you're going behind the curtain here, so there's going to be a little bit of time period, but uh, we are having this conversation probably about a week or so before uh, this episode airs. So the sweet taste of champagne is still in my mouth as I uh, I didn't drink it out of the Stanley Cup, but uh, I'm still enjoying the uh, the great one that I saw. Wow. Congratulations again, you son of a... So, Rico, what else is new with you? Are you in Cleveland right now? Have you traveled to any interesting places? Uh, I am in Cleveland. I will be hitting the road in a couple days, going to Montana and Las Vegas for a few days for work and uh, travel home and then back to those two places. So I'm going to be skipping around the country coming up shortly. Nice. Montana, the uh, the bustling commercial enterprise of Montana. Big sky <laughs> state, they like there to call it. Yeah, so can't wait for that. Beautiful place. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show, I think. Obviously, was the horrible tragedy in Orlando, and I'm sure there's plenty of discussions That'll be had in the next week or so before this episode runs. But one of the things that really annoyed me was the whole talk about the terrorist watch list and just the, the sentiment, OK, this guy was on the list, so therefore he shouldn't have been having a gun. And, you know, I wish this guy didn't have you know access to a firearm. But I think the separate point is, how do people get on this terrorist watch list? I, I think that's really troubling and concerning that. There's not really a very specific criteria to get on it, and it seems that it's only growing and growing. One of the, the citations I saw was that there was over a million people on it, and it was only in – this was back in 2009, so God knows how many people. 
and uh, how many more people will be on it going forward without any kind of due process. So that's the biggest thing for me is, I mean, you, you ask, what's the process for getting on the watch list? You know, there is, there really is no process. I mean, that means it's, there's literally no due process for these people on the watch list. Hillary Clinton and pretty much every Democrat, liberal, progressive, however you want to label it, that I know, all the, the whole anti-gun crowd is universally in favor of taking the Second Amendment rights away from those on the watch list. Most of these people don't even know they're actually on the watch list until they try to fly. So. Yeah. Like, that's what I was wondering about is like there's not like there's a website you can go type your name and be like, oh, I'm on the watch list. And, and Homeland Security doesn't send you a little card like you get from your credit card company if you're disputing a charge like, oh, you're on the terrorist watch list. No, you, there's no notice. There's no due process. And then – the quote that I saw, she was on this week, uh, ABC's This Week in December. She said, we have a list. If you're on that list and you believe you should not be on that list, we have a process to actually raise your objections about being on that list. Well, I see a couple of problems with that. One, how do you know you're on the list to begin with? And second, why do you have to prove that you should be able to retain your constitutional rights before you get them? It's like the burden of proof has shifted to the person to show – that they're not a terrorist. They have to prove it negative. Another thing about this particular Mateen person, you know, it looked like the FBI actually investigated him twice, if I'm not mistaken, and they apparently didn't find any information where they could pursue him further. You know, there's not an answer to everything. And sometimes things are just terrible tragedies that, that can't be prevented. And sometimes it's just like, you can't prevent everything. It's just tragedies happen and not everything can be under someone's control. Yeah, obviously a terrible, terrible tragedy. I mean, I didn't want to talk about this too much, but now that we started talking about it, it's hard not to, because I know in the next few days here, more could come out. We could end up looking like, like morons who aren't up to date on the news. <laughs> I'd have no other way. We, we probably already look like that anyway, so I'm not too concerned. But one of the uh, the things that really just struck me, not immediately upon hearing it, because first you heard, you know, you heard, you know, this tragedy in Orlando, 20 people shot. You started shooting at 2 a.m. Then, you know, the, the next day, um, Sunday and then into uh, into Monday, reading more about this. And you start to hear that the police actually didn't raid the place until 5, 6 a.m. They didn't kill uh, this Mateen character until I think it was 5 or 6 a.m. So they're making a, a perimeter around this location, around this nightclub, Pulse nightclub, for four hours while people are just being slaughtered inside. And, you know, it, to me, I think the blame should be pointed, obviously, at this jerk off who was who killed all these people and it did the tragedy, but also at the police. Where the heck were the police? Even if their plan was to, you know, create a perimeter and then and then close in from there, what the heck took so long? What took four hours? Yeah, it seems like there's no problem raiding a house at 4 a.m. if they suspect the person of possessing weed. But when we actually need these uh, SWAT raids that they use all this federal money for, it takes them hours and hours to actually do something where it would save lives. It's hard to condemn the police, you know, for not taking quicker action without knowing everything, but it certainly does seem like it took far too long, especially if there was, in fact, you know, an exchange of gunfire at 2 a.m. with the off-duty officer who was at the door. So what is going on that takes four hours when people are dying? I mean, come on. This is what 
this equipment and, and these tactics are specifically for. And it just seems like there was a failure on that level to, to get in much, much sooner. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, you know, we, we could talk about this a lot more, but like I said, we'll probably leave that maybe for another episode or for a, uh, a round table discussion. Maybe for now we will, uh, shift topics and start talking about some, some noteworthy stories, uh, criminal justice stories, some felonies trending in the news. The first one takes us to Mason City, Iowa. Uh, this is uh, what happened here. An Iowa State Patrol Sergeant, Michael Hagen, a uh, 31-year-old sergeant of Forest City, he has been arrested and charged with one felony count of falsifying public documents and a misdemeanor charge of third-degree theft. Now, what happened is investigators are saying that Hagen took approximately 150 prescription pills from six criminal cases between 2014 and 2016. And he was able to take these from an evidence room at the uh, Iowa State Patrol Post in Mason City. He was able to do this because he was one of the three evidence room custodians. So he's allegedly he's admitted to taking the drugs. Um, He's admitted to to replacing them with, I think, like aspirin or some other type of pill like that. And the thing that, that jumps out to me the most from this, because this was, they said, five to eight cases. I'm not sure why they couldn't put an exact number on it. Maybe there's certain stuff he admitted to taking from. And there, I think there were some other signs that he may have tampered with other evidence that he hasn't allegedly admitted to doing yet. So maybe that's with, with the five to eight. But it, in these five to eight cases, I think three of these at least are already closed, which means that probably three people likely are in jail or are facing some sort of repercussions based upon the evidence, evidence that maybe was not even real. So I'm not sure how that would uh, be uh, retroactively you know, uh, brought back to give these people justice if they were using evidence that was invalid. Rico, I'm hmm. just curious to get your opinion on this. As a lawyer, uh, do you have any idea how that would work? Well, I actually hadn't considered that aspect. Well, I'm sure what generally happens in these cases is if, say, person was stopped driving a car, for example. The guy was a highway patrol officer, I think you said. They seize whatever. They have to do some kind of testing on it to verify it's actually what, you know, oxycodone or Adderall or whatever the drugs were. So they have to send it to a lab. They test it. And then those reports are generally what's used as the evidence. Um, they're not going to, you know, literally bring the, the bottle of pills or the, you know, the drugs to court. So what I was assuming is after the convictions, they put the drugs or prescription pills in the evidence locker, and they're just sitting there until they get disposed of. And I think that's when he took the, uh, you know, the pills. Now, if if they weren't actual oxycodone or Adderall and they falsified reports, well, certainly that would be grounds for a new trial. But Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that that was what the case here. I think this was probably after the the cases were closed and the cop just figured no one's ever going to look for this stuff again. The cases are over and no one's going to count the pills. So I can just take some here, take some there. That's kind of my understanding of what happened. So I don't think there's going to be any kind of post conviction relief for anyone convicted of the, the crimes that led to the seizure of these pills. Even in the case of an appeal, I mean, if they, they can't use that evidence now because it's been, it's been tampered with. Well, it's already on court record. Yeah, I, I think guess, that the testing has already been done and it's going to, you know, they're not going to say, well, we need the pills now. Eventually, they have to dispose of all this stuff. So as long as there was no 
issues with the testing and the reports from the labs as far as what the substances actually were. I think that's kind of the defendants had their chance to dispute that if they wanted to in the original trial. And if they didn't do it, you know, raise an objection to it, it's just basically too late now. Another interesting part of this case, he actually claimed that the reason he was taking the pills is because he developed an addiction to opioids, an addiction that he developed. I guess he, he got some painkillers and he's being treated for ulcerated colitis and other internal intestinal disorders. Yeah. So I thought it was kind of interesting, too, that he was prescribed these strong narcotics for those conditions. I, I've never had them personally, but I do know people who have had them, and they definitely were not treated with oxycodone. So it's very – and those drugs only cause further gastro issues. So I, I think that was kind of exactly. troubling that he was – developed the addiction after those conditions. The other thing that I, I thought was kind of interesting was the actual charges because he got the felony for falsifying records, but not for the actual stealing of the, the drugs. I just took a little five minutes to Google earlier today what the you know oxycodone not prescribed is considered a, a Schedule II substance in Iowa. And so the penalty for possession of any scheduled uh, two substance, unless otherwise specified, which it wasn't, is a Class C felony. It was a little unclear, I think, from the article how many pills he had taken, but he definitely took at least one, and it looked like maybe up to 150. So if possession of any amount is a Class C felony in Iowa, how did he not get charged a felony? It seemed he got kind of a, a break because he was a police officer. That seems like that's the case. I, I don't have the answer for that, but that, that would not be surprising. I'm not sure. I don't think they said the sentences that would go along with either of these with the felony count for falsifying the records or the misdemeanor charge of the third degree theft. But that's a very good question why he wouldn't have had two felony charges. Yeah, it seemed like he got a, a little break there. Yeah, well, you know, they, they probably figured, well, this guy's has hard enough. He's got his addiction. He lost his job. You know, he's been a, he's been a police. So I was taking it easy on him. He was only stealing from police. From the, yeah, know. if only they felt that way with other people who had addiction issues. But uh, no such luck. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that and that is the point right there. If this was anyone else in society, they'll be facing the uh, the hammer of the law coming down on them with full yeah, force, especially for the quantity. It sounds like he had taken. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's trafficking level, you know, amount. So he would be even deeper if uh, he was a regular citizen. Yeah. Who's to say he wasn't no. doing this for a longer period of time and trafficking he drugs could. while he was doing it? And he just made the the thing up about the, the That's stomach That's a good issues. point because uh, his excuse seems a little, like we said, a little weak to begin with. So it might be a little deeper than what we think. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of police officers acting appropriately, we have another story of a police officer acting appropriately. This is in Jacksonville where this occurred. A Jacksonville sheriff is now fired and uh, he was caught. This was a little while ago where the incident actually happened, but it's now the charges are just occurring now. So what happened is this officer was caught on surveillance, and I, I really strongly encourage you to go to the show notes page to check this out. Show notes page, lionsofliberty.com slash FF25. The video that I will link to shows this officer just 
punching and just knocking the heck out of this poor woman who was handcuffed. Punching her, it looks like, a couple times in the chest, maybe in the stomach, maybe in the upper shoulder. And you can see this woman's head snap back and possibly maybe hit the concrete or brick wall behind her. So it's a very, uh, very violent video and uh, disturbing to watch. And in the video, you can see this woman, Mariah or Myra Alejandra Martinez. You can see her fall down and actually lay on the ground for a while. And that's where a little bit of, of a, a controversy comes into it. Now, the officer's name, and I'm going to butcher his name. I have no prayer saying this. I shouldn't even try. And Akinyemi Borisad, that's close enough, 26-year-old. He's now fired, but in this video, like I said, really knocks the crap out of this woman. And some controversy over if she was unconscious or not. Obviously, Miss Martinez is saying she was unconscious for nearly 15 minutes until the Jacksonville Fire and Rescue Department finally arrived. And a witness, another person who was uh, detained on the scene, is saying that they had to use smelling salts to revive her. Now, the state is disagreeing with this, and they're saying that Martinez uh, was actually conscious and just pretending to be knocked out, which... It's really a, sort of an odd thing to contest because even so, if she's pretending to be knocked out, I mean, the video still shows the officer knocking the crap out of her. And the state is saying that she did not submit evidence as to her injuries. She's claiming that she's, you know, has some injuries to her spine and she has, has lasting headaches and things like that. So, Rico, just, just first of all, I just want to get your opinion on this video. Did you get a chance to watch it? I watched a little of it. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. And uh, I had kind of, I put more or uh, I was thinking more about what the statements from the state of Florida or the Jacksonville police department were, because I, I too thought it was really odd. It's like their statement was, well, she wasn't unconscious. She didn't need a stretcher. The smelling salts weren't really necessary. And there was no evidence of any fracture uh, or nerve damage. And it's like, what are they talking about? <laughs> it seems like they're uh they're they're punishing this person for not having you know thousands of pages of medical records um, to support what was clear on the video. And I'm like, why are they saying this? So I looked up, and my understanding is he didn't get charged with a felony. And I guess the reason they made this statement was because the statute for felony battery in Florida requires great bodily harm from the intentional or unconsented touching. So they're saying, I guess, because she wasn't knocked unconscious, apparently she didn't suffer any great bodily harm. It seems kind of like a, a perverse burden of proof that an officer can punch a person repeatedly in the face and then say, well, you didn't get any x-rays or MRIs, so you know, no felony there. And it's just like, well, would that really be the same standard if the reverse was true? And I think the foreshadow, no, a different story. No, the answer is no. It's a lot easier to be charged with a felony in the reverse situation. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. The first time I read this, I thought, I thought it might be a joke or yeah. I, it was like one of those fake sites. Yeah. I, I kept having to reread the state saying, you know, you know, she didn't need a stretcher. She wasn't unconscious. When the uh, fire department or the fire and rescue normally arrives, they never use smelling salts. They only use smelling salts if the person's faking. Like, what the <laughs> hell? Are you kidding me? <laughs> is, is that something that happens often? Is that in their protocol? If someone's faking, use smelling salts to, to wake them I up. I would love to know that. Yeah, it's 
it's absurd. Apparently, she was faking being unconscious. So for you know, she's planning. Apparently, she had the foresight, and I think she was being punched because she was kind of disorderly and drunk. Yeah, I think she was. I guess they picked her up at a strip club, or she got kicked out of a strip club, or something like that. And yeah, she was being. I think she was yelling at the police officers. So clearly, she definitely needed to be punched repeatedly. Obviously, that goes without saying. And then, uh, while she was drunk and disorderly, she also clearly had this the foresight to think, okay, I need to fake being unconscious, and that's going to help my future lawsuit against the Jacksonville PD. What a <laughs> what a person! It's crazy, but. Uh- It's interesting and it's sickening at the same time. You know, these first two stories we talked about, police officers getting preferential treatment. It's no secret. It happens and it's happening right in front of our eyes here. So, you know, you're not going to see this talked about on uh, any of the mainstream news channels. You know, no one's going to report on this stuff. It's a serious problem. And not to come down and trash the police, you know, like I've, I've said many times before, I don't have a, you know, a problem with every police officer. I don't think there's some conspiracy that the police are, you know, all bad and are all out to get us. But the way the system is uh, constructed, uh, the way the system is constructed with the prosecution and police officers really being a team. And oftentimes, especially when we talk about the drug war and uh, these two cases, well, the first one was drug related with on the police officer stealing, but oftentimes uh, with them being drug related in a way with the drug war where if they can get more convictions to feed the system, then they'll get more funding. It's just uh, corruption in my mind is inherent in the system. And I mean, there's lots of ways to, to speculate, to try to solve it. I won't get into all those ways now, but it's a sickening problem. And I think the, the best thing we can do now is just to shine a light on it and try to expose it as much as we can. The other thing is, it's just like, how do you look your, you know, you're supposed to be serving the people as a, a police officer. And how do you you lose so much credibility if one of your own does that to a person and, and then kind of s- skirts away from any kind of punishment? It, it just builds resentment in the community and it makes other officers' jobs harder to do too because they're going to have to deal with the backlash. So I just think it's a no-win for everyone, you know, private citizens, other police officers to let this one person really escape any kind of significant penalty or charges for this incident. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the thought process or, you know, they scapegoat this guy. They say, just a bad egg. We got rid of him. Everything's fine now. But he's not being punished and people are going to remember that. They're going to say, well, you can do whatever you want and maybe you're going to be fired, but you're not going to face the same level of penalty that everyone else would. And it just builds, you know anger and hostility towards other people who are trying to do their job properly. So I don't get it. Yeah. And, and you do see more, I mean, you see more and more police officers, you know, kind of waking up as time goes on and leaving the force. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully more of that happens. Exactly. So let's move on and let's, uh, let's play America's favorite new podcast game show. Is this a crime? And should anyone do time? <laughs> I'm not prepared. I don't know. Not prepared at all. Well, you got some time to prepare. I'm going to read you uh, the way this works, Rico. You've played before, but I'm going to read you a uh, scenario here with a felony. And uh, at the end of it, you will say if this was a crime and if this person should do any time. So our first story involves a uh, one of my favorite things. Not really, but a Donald Trump event, a Donald Trump rally. And of course, at every Donald Trump rally, it wouldn't be a Donald Trump event without a small riot afterwards. This is what happened when Donald Trump came to Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
a 14-year-old boy, uh, he's a boy, he's not a man, he's 14 years old, is being charged during this small riot, uh, small skirmish that ensued afterwards between protesters and Trump supporters and police officers. He's accused of throwing a rock at a police officer. So this 14-year-old by the name of Marcus Grego, the police officers are claiming and that they witnessed him actually pick up a rock and throw it at a police sergeant. So that's an eyewitness account from a police officer. Grego is being charged with two felony counts of aggravated battery on a police officer. I guess it's notable to say that he is denied throwing the rock, but his word means nothing against the word of a police officer. So that essentially is meaningless in the proceedings. It's not meaningless to observers talking about this. But Rico, what do you think about this case? This 14-year-old kid probably got caught up in the, uh, you know, the the event, the anti-Trump sentiment in the air. What do you think about okay, this? Well, I lied a little bit. I was prepared on this one. And this was what I was talking about earlier when I was saying foreshadowing because it's just the different standards. And I realize Florida, New Mexico, different states, and they all have their own different laws. But if you look at the Jacksonville case, the person got punched repeatedly in the face, but the, the puncher was not charged with a felony. Well, here, a rock was thrown, and who knows the size of the rock. It doesn't appear there was any injury at all. And even that the officers weren't didn't even seem that mad or uh, upset by the whole incident reading the story. But the mere fact of throwing some kind of rock at a police officer did result in a a felony charge because it was thrown by a private citizen and the person that was struck was a police officer. So there's a, a much different standard for private citizen versus police officer. The felony charge is absolutely ridiculous. Um, it seems like even the police didn't want the kid charged with the felony, but the prosecutor for some reason is gung-ho on charging a 14-year-old with a felony. No uh, apparent bodily injury or property damage was done. Kid is 14. Sounds like, you know, he got caught up in, in something. I think the proper way to handle this would be to do some kind of diversion program where, you know, he goes in front of a judge. The judge says, like, he had no criminal history at all. The judge says, okay, go do a ride along. It, it seemed like that's what the police wanted him to do is some ride alongs, community service, keep your nose clean. In a year, this is there's you know it's diversion, so there's no formal conviction or anything that's going to stay with the kid. What what is that doing to charge a 14 year old with a felony? It's absolutely ridiculous, given the other facts in the case. It is interesting that it's yeah. It seemed you know reading that article, just like you said, the police you know who witnessed him throwing the rock seemed to be in favor of you know giving him the benefit of the doubt. They don't want to make an example out of him or they're recommending the prosecutors don't make an example out of him. And they mentioned maybe taking him on ride alongs or or working in a horse stable. I guess that'd be cleaning up. I, you know, that probably would be pretty, pretty bad cleaning up uh, police horses yeah. you know, everywhere. That's, that's pretty bad punishment. I mean, the kid's probably a freshman in high school or like eighth grade at that age. Clearly, he doesn't have a very sophisticated life history or at least it didn't sound like one so so what is the point of, of this it, it just i don't get it get the um prosecutor's decision here at all so to, to summarize you would say that there is a crime here but the uh definitely no time maybe some well, maybe some sort of time served community service yeah I mean, just some very minor punishment to kind of you know 
keep the kid on the straight and narrow. You you did make him say he can't be throwing rocks at anyone. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I don't know what kind of rock. It was a big one, a little one, whatever. You, you can't be throwing rocks, kid. People, kid. Let's okay. Let's learn that lesson and then go forward and, and don't you know f up again. Yeah, maybe it was a pebble. Maybe it wasn't a rock <laughs> yeah. at all. So I don't know. Who, maybe it didn't throw anything. You know, who knows? Well, go find the pebble and introduce it as evidence. Come on, <laughs> you do go. your job. All right. So th- that one was clear cut. This next one, bear with me as I describe this because it, it is kind of super complicated. So once again, I'll encourage the listener to go read this for themselves on the show notes page, lionsofliberty.com slash FF25. So the case here and it, at the center of this case is a law that was passed in 1986, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's, it's an anti-hacking law, which was kind of surprising to me in 1986 that Anyone was thinking of computer hacking, but apparently... It wasn't an internet. <laughs> I, I don't know. How are they, they hacking? They're just hacking uh, Apple IIcs or <laughs> uh, hacking floppy disks, the, the real floppy disks. I remember the, the old ones that were, were huge. I do remember those back in second grade. <laughs> they were great. But anyway, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting off topic. So this guy was an IT administrator named Michael Thomas. And what happened was, I guess a couple of his friends... At the place they were working in 2011, Click Motive were laid off or fired. I think they were laid off. And he eventually ended up quitting and trying to become a, uh, a private consultant. And before he left, though, he deleted a collection of files. He deleted uh, some backup records, things like that. And normally, you would think with something like this, if there was harm, if there was, a, if Click Motive could prove that. These you know files being deleted harmed them in some way. They would just file a civil lawsuit, and I think you know that's it. Kind of started down that path for a while, according to the indictment. Uh, he, he has been indicted. So this happened in December 2011. Thomas deleted 615 files from the ClickMotive servers, as well as a dozen pages of the company's internal wiki. He also turned off some automatic backup settings and things of that nature. And the indictment read that this was this interpreted to be uh, sabotage. And initially, Click Motive seemed to be considering this just a civil issue. And they were, you know, they filed, they sent a subpoena ordering um, Thomas to submit to a deposition. And in 2012, they dropped the criminal investigation. And in 2013, Thomas turned down a plea deal, and this is where it gets really even more interesting. He turned down a plea agreement and decided to flee the United States for Brazil, where his wife's family lives. So that does not make him look innocent at all. Flees to Brazil. And by fleeing to Brazil, this gave the prosecution a chance to file a motion in order to request to seize all of his American assets. So they were able to, one of the things they seized were uh, some proceeds from a, a home that he sold in Texas. He's returned now to the United States voluntarily, but now he's been jailed and he's, there's no offering of bail and obviously no offering of bail because he's considered a flight risk because he did flee before. So just sort of a, a really odd case. And if you go into reading this article, it talks more about how the uh, Electronic Freedom Foundation is talking about how this sets a dangerous precedent of really shifting, um, I think, shifting from a civil employer employee relationship where an employer would have to prove some damages to really a criminal issue. So Rico, I guess, first of all, do you, I mean, do you think this is a crime here? 
And should this person be charged for it criminally? I kind of want to punt on this question. It's hard for me to say because there's some, you know, he deleted some evidence or not evidence. He deleted some files. But from what I read, the files he deleted may have been saved elsewhere on the company's internal server. So did he? I don't know. It seems like maybe a factual issue whether he actually did commit a crime. And uh, the other thing is they allege $5,000 in in damage the company did. So I'm not sure why – this is a federal government uh, prosecutor, assistant U.S. uh, attorney filing this lawsuit. And it seems it's not so much about the particular facts of the case, the reason they're pursuing this, but it's to expand this law that they're prosecuting them under because there's really no other reason that they they need to be involved with the, the damage that was done doesn't really seem to be a, a federal crime. So, you know, I, I'm not sure why other than to expand this statute that they're getting involved. And the other thing with the hacker thing is typically, or at least all other cases in the past, it was about people who didn't have access or, or they were not, not authorized to access the materials were charged under the hacker statute. Well, this guy was an employee and his very job involved access to these files that he deleted. So there's no kind of quote unquote hacking going on. So I, I think this is just, again, a case where the federal government is trying to expand their authority. Excellent analysis. I have nothing to add. No, just kidding. <laughs> I will punt as well. I think you hit it spot on. I, it's it's definitely it just stinks of a, an opportunistic, you know, the federal government trying to intervene where they can to expand into an area where they do not yet have maybe a, a lot of control, a, a lot of sunshine into into prosecuting issues like this, which really should not be are not criminal issues. Like you said, they said five thousand dollars worth of damages. Well, how much? I don't think they said how much the home sale, the proceeds from that were taken. But the proceeds from that weren't taken and given to Click Motive, mm-hmm. at least as, as far as I can tell. They're just taken. They're probably just in holding somewhere. I mean, you, you could probably just make Click Motive whole just by giving them five thousand yeah. dollars, and and this would be over with. So yeah, I found it interesting too. I mean, it, obviously he did flee, but he also did come back. So you'd think that would be some kind of plus in whether or not he should get bail. I think in general, the denial of bail is far too prevalent. Uh, That's a whole other issue. But, you know, you do have a constitutional right to not be denied bail. And like everything else in the Constitution, there's kind of, you know, exceptions. But this is just, I think, another case where it's used far too often, the denial of bail, especially he came back to the country. He didn't need to. You know, he came back. There's a lien or whatever, not a lien, uh, I'm forgetting the word, against his house. So there's plenty of reasons for him to stay and to be granted some sort of bail. But that's a whole other issue. That's your show for today. Rico, thank you for coming back on, talking about these stories. I think we talked about some important stories, starting with Hillary Clinton and then talking about some police overreach, some police abuse swept under the rug and finishing up with a good old-fashioned federal overreach. So thank you for coming on, talking about that. No problem. Good time as always, my man. It's always good to get your input, some lawyerly input, so that's very much appreciated. <laughs> My astute legal mind, me and uh, Alan Dershowitz, you know, same level. There you go. There you go. 
Okay, guys, that's a wrap for the show today, guys. Thank you again for listening. Like I've mentioned, like three or four times during the show, check out the show notes page for links to everything we talked about, lionsofliberty.com slash FF25. And please, if you have not joined our private Facebook group, I don't know what the heck you're waiting for. We've got a lot of great conversations going on every single day. People are posting new stuff. You can join that group. By going on Facebook, just type in the search bar at the top of the page. Just type in Lions of Liberty Forum. The group will pop up. Click join, and we will approve you as quickly as we can. I want to thank you all for listening. And please remind you that if you are listening to this show, you probably know someone else, like-minded person, that uh, probably thinks the way you do. Maybe a friend, a family member, someone like that. I want to invite you. I want to challenge you to please share this show. Share it with one other person. Email it to them, share with them on Facebook, send it on Twitter, however you like to share your things, your podcast, your things that you listen to. Please do that for me today. And I just got an email today with a uh, recommendation for a future guest. I'm not going to say who that is, but I'm excited about it. So if you yourself have somebody that you'd like to hear me interview, you'd like to hear a certain topic discussed, you can reach out to me, send an email to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. And I promise I'll get back to you. And uh, if you have a recommendation that that sounds good, I'll I'll bring them on the show or we'll talk about it on the show. So please do that. I want to thank everyone for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.